0: nuclear lies nuclear excuses the santa susana field lab or ssfl is a nuclear radiation and rocket fuel contaminated former rocket site located in the hills of simi valley only 30 miles from downtown los angeles in 2018 the massive wolsey fire started on ssfl grounds and swept through the site and far beyond burning contaminated brush and debris releasing smoke and ash suspected of containing radiation into the environment. Of course, only nine hours after the fire started, while it was still raging, the California Department of Toxic Substances issued a statement, reassuring the public that no radioactive materials had been released by the fire and nothing above normal background radiation levels had been found. But people were alarmed, samples were taken, and three years later, a just-released peer-reviewed scientific study of dirt, dust, and ash samples, taken immediately after the fire within a 10-mile radius of SSFL, has revealed a very different picture of what happened, and puts paid to those nuclear excuses. As a world-renowned scientist involved with the study explains, What's the source? What's
1: the fingerprint? Who's responsible? So even if you do get the radiation data out, the first thing you'll hear is it's background. It's okay. Or the second thing would be, okay, you found it above background, but it's not from us. It's from atomic testing. I mean, why not? Right? Why should there be radiation around SSFL? That's from SSFL. I mean, why should it be from a place that burned three years ago? and that's a few hundred yards away, when we can blame it on something that happened 70 years ago, that's half a world away.
0: Well, when Dr. Marco Caltefin, who analyzed the environmental samples taken in the immediate aftermath of the fire and discovered alarming levels of radioactivity as much as nine miles away, tells you how the so-called experts always work to cover up alarming, if not damning, information about nuclear dangers, You see how purportedly responsible officials will scramble to cover up any public knowledge that points to that really dangerous seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have
2: those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking. But our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.
0: Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. The Weekly International News Magazine, keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. Today is Tuesday, October 19, 2021, and this is a special full-length interview on the just-released peer-reviewed report, Radioactive Microparticles Related to the Woolsey Fire in Simi Valley, California. It was published in the Journal of Environmental Radioactivity. So let's get to it. We have three guests this week, all of them world-class, and they're the ones behind this important study. We talk with Dr. Marco Kaltofen of Worcester Polytechnic Institute, He is an environmental scientist with 30 years' experience in environmental workplace and product safety investigations, and his nuclear forensics work includes experience in the U.S., the Middle East, Russia, India, Japan, and European Union countries. Partnering with him for the study are two figures familiar to Nuclear Hot Seat listeners. Arnie Gunderson is a nuclear engineer and expert witness, as well as chief engineer for Fairwinds Energy Associates. Maggie Gunderson is a journalist, paralegal, and former atomic power industry spokesperson who serves as president of Fairwinds Energy Education, as well as a member of their board of directors. After three years of work, the report on the Santa Susana Field Lab was published on October 8th. The story released to the media last Thursday, October 14, and I spoke with the principals on Monday, October 18, 2021. Ernie Gunderson, Maggie Gunderson, Marco Kaltofen, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat.
2: Thank you, Libby.
0: Let's have each of you in turn. What, if any, involvement did you have with the Santa Susana Field Lab or Parents Against Santa Susana Field Lab before the 2018 Woolsey Fire.
3: I was asked years and years ago to take a look at the the quality of the cleanup. And I filed a uh, a report on behalf of one of the groups out there. I, I think it was probably 2014 or 2015. And it basically showed that they had done a pretty poor job of first monitoring the radiation they had on site, and second, uh, measuring it, and then actually cleaning it up. One of the problems, you know, when you're working in a radioactive environment, background is higher. It doesn't take a lot of knowledge. Well, they were proposing to determine if a building was radioactive by taking the sample in the building and measuring it in the building. That was just one of many things they were trying to do. And then they were going to ship it to a a landfill in California somewhere, just a a public landfill. That that was my involvement before the fire.
0: What was wrong with taking a sample and measuring it inside the building?
3: The problem with with taking a sample and measuring it at the same location is that whatever the background is at that location is going to corrupt the sample. So you really should take that sample and, and go to a clean lab somewhere and measure it. So that was fundamentally something wrong. And then, you know, to ship this concrete and dirt and put it in a landfill that, that gets rained on and runs down into the local water tables, it saved them a lot of money, but it sure wasn't a good public health practice.
0: When did you, Arnie, Marco, Maggie, when did you become aware of the Woolsey Fire and the significance of it having started
2: at the site of the Santa Susana Field Lab? I had several calls from different people living near that facility asking Fairwinds if they could help see what's coming up from the site. Prior to that, I never had any association with the Santa Susana Field Lab, and I didn't know anything about it. How
0: soon after the Woolsey fire started, did you become aware of it and the significance of it having started at the Santa Susana Field Lab?
2: I became aware of it when different colleagues and people living near the site phone fairwinds because of our prior work, to ask if we could help with any kind of sampling or what we knew about the Santa Susana Field Lab. And Arnie knew a few things, as he said, but I didn't know anything. I had never researched it and never been there or anything like that. And how soon after the fire started did you receive these calls? Within 24 hours, as the fire moved and became associated with the Santa Susana Field Lab.
0: What was your immediate reaction to the fact that the fire was ripping through this known to be radiologically and
2: chemically contaminated site? I was really scared for me, for us, and all the research that we've done at different sites around the world and working with our colleague, Dr. Marco Kaltofen, we've all learned how radiation migrates. It's in microparticles of dust and dirt, And it can be inhaled, ingested, bioaccumulated on plants. It's really a huge hazard around the world. What was your
0: response, Maggie, Arnie, Marco? What was your response when only nine hours after the fire began and it was still raging wildly out of control as it would for several days, at that point, nine hours in, The California Department of Toxic Substances or DTSC issued a statement saying that there was no danger from radioactive particles being released by this fire.
1: I'm the boring scientist here. And one of the things I rely on is letting the data tell the story. that's, That's what you're taught. That's what you grow up with as a scientist. And that's really what you produce. You produce a lot of data and you try and figure out what the story is. And that's a good way to lead when you've got a fast-moving environmental crisis. But in nine hours, you don't have a lot of time to get data to tell the story. So you have to ask, what's driving that? And the fear is, when you come up with an all clear so soon during an environmental release, it's possible you're relying on your prejudices and not on your data.
0: When and where did the idea of testing for radiation released by
2: the fire come from? And how soon was it discussed? I think we discussed it right after we heard the news and people called us. We started discussing it because we've done this work before. Marco and Arnie authored one paper together on Japan. That's on Fairwind's website. And then the three of us co-authored another paper together that was published last fall in November. That talks about the Tokyo Olympics and shows how radiation migrates. I began doing the citizen science sampling work and getting in touch with citizen scientists back in 2012 when Arnie first went to Japan about Fukushima. That was the same time we met Marco and we started developing all these protocols and and worked with him. And the data we've uncovered, I think Arnie and and Marco can speak to it better than I can because they've traveled together and and done this research together. You know, I write and I do fundraising, but I haven't been out in the field working with either one of them yet.
3: We were beginning to put a plan in in motion while the embers were still warm. The fire had been put out, but I think it's important to note that the citizen scientists that, that did the sampling got in before the rainy season started. So we were able to get on the ground when the samples were still where they landed. And that took an enormous amount of effort between Maggie and Marco and, and me, uh, developing sampling protocols and teaching the, the local teams through, public, through PSRLA. All of that was very quickly developed. And we were on the ground, importantly, because nobody else will get this data now because it's all washed away after a couple of years. We were on the ground while the ash was still on the ground and not running down into a creek or down a sewer or being washed off the side of a house or something like that. Our data is irreplaceable and irrefutable.
0: You mentioned PSRLA, that's Physicians for Social Responsibility. How were they involved in this process?
2: I first spoke with them after Marco, Arnie, and I had agreed that we wanted to do this process. And Dr. Kaltofen worked on establishing protocols that we had used overseas already on making full procedures with me that were easily understandable by lay people. Let me hand off to Dr. Kaltofen to really talk about this science and what it entails.
1: I think one of the things that's happening in science right now is a real movement toward citizen science, where People who are local or indigenous to their communities are really taking a lead in helping develop the kind of data that they need to make important decisions. And there's a lot of good things happening with that. I think during the pandemic, we figured out that we do science communication poorly, that there is needless death and sickness because we've failed to communicate what science can and can't do well. So when you're the person who is helping to study the problem, develop the data, and you're also the person who's talking to your community about what it means, that's a big plus. And then the the side benefits are things like the model of sending an elite scientist from an institution out into the field to do work separates that science from the people who need it the most. And it's also inefficient. And it's a high carbon footprint way to proceed. And that might not be available to us in the future. And as it turns out, it's pandemic ready. It means that we aren't sending people traveling when travel is so difficult. And again, it allowed us to get the kind of samples we needed in the quantity we needed, where the things that the scientist does best, actually looking at methods, developing the analyses, and then working with the community to talk about what we found. You know, it's a, it's a very, very nice mix. We're asking to answer important questions. And the Gundersons brought this up, this idea of background and, and the second idea of source. If we find radiation, we're always asking, is it worse than background? Is this something that is caused by industrial contamination or is this just the way our planet is? And a little bit finer question What's the source? What's the fingerprint? Who's responsible? So even if you do get the radiation data out, the first thing you'll hear is, it's background, it's okay. Or the second thing would be, okay, you found it above background, but it's not from us. It's from atomic testing. I mean, why not, right? Why should there be radiation around SSFL that's from SSFL? I mean, why should it be from a place that burned three years ago and that's a few hundred yards away when we can blame it on something that happened 70 years ago that's half a world away. So it means that we're designing studies that determine what the background is, that determine what the source is and then use as much of the local knowledge that we possibly can to do a better study. And luckily for us, in this case, with, LAPSR and others that helped out, we managed to put all that together. And I think it's a great model. I think it's an emerging model for science. And I hope a lot more people will be doing it soon. We have not copyrighted this. This is other people's work. And we've just found a case where it was just what we needed.
3: You know, Libby, it's important to remember that uh, I've worked on a couple of nuclear reactor sites that have been contaminated. And The reflex reaction in the nuclear industry is to blame the bomb. Oh, it's fallout. It happened 50 years ago. I've seen that at Vermont Yankee. I've seen that at Pilgrim. All over the country, the go-to culprit is the bomb. And what we were able to do in this paper is show that that didn't work. We were able to put a fingerprint on it that was not a bomb fingerprint.
0: And the fingerprint is various readings that come from specific nuclear sites. Go a little bit further into that.
1: I'm probably gonna be the one to help on this question. There are a lot of different things that are happening and the idea is that we have multiple lines of evidence that prove the point that we see in this data. Very importantly, the highest levels that we found were all around the perimeter of the laboratory and they tended to generally reduce as you got further away, except for areas where there was contaminated ash fall that we were able to measure. So that was an important thing because bomb follow doesn't know it's supposed to fall just at the Santa Susana laboratory and not in other places. The other thing that we looked for was we actually isolated the radioactive microparticles individually and looked at them one at a time took their spectra, took photographs. So we can actually see what these particles are. And you know what? The Santa Susana fire, as bad as it was, it was very hot. It's not the 100 million degrees hot you have from a nuclear detonation. The material that you release after a nuclear detonation looks very different under the microscope. It's been vaporized, it condenses. Sometimes it looks like a perfect little sphere. particle from nuclear fallout is extremely distinctive. It's a rare, exotic, super high energy process, whereas fire is common. And the things that we see from a fire look completely different. This is a step that not many people take. So because we can see what this particle looks like, we can say this one came from a fire. This one is a natural crystal. This is small metal turnings from an industrial process. This is, well, from a nuclear detonation, maybe in Polynesia. They're completely different. So if you say this material that we're finding is consistent with bomb fallout, what you're saying is I either did not read their paper or I'm deliberately ignoring what the paper says. Those are
0: your two choices. So we've been talking about testing protocols. What did they consist of? What were the materials collected? Where were the samples collected from? And who did the collecting?
1: Well, the collecting, of course, comes from the people who were local to SSFL. So it's it's a large group of people who've been working very hard for years on this project. We're actually extremely lucky to have been invited to be part of their team. And I'm grateful for that. Hopefully what we had to offer was some more exotic ways of of looking at some of these materials. I mean, in the the nuclear industry, we work with very exotic materials and this helps us actually because it helps us tease out these nuclear particles from the, the vast background of other material that's there. So we focused on analyses that would help us do that. Once the samples arrived, and Fairwinds made sure that everything was screened and everything was being done safely. Uh, we did multiple analyses on each sample. We counted the amount of beta activity. These are essentially subatomic particles that are given off by these radioactive isotopes that are unique to each isotope. So if it came from cesium, it's a different kind of beta particle than if it came from another isotope. There's no quiz, everybody, after this, uh, after this podcast. So please excuse me if I start spewing out all these names too quickly. The other thing that we do is once we've looked at beta energies, we look at alpha energies, different kinds of radioactivity from the same sample. And of course, if we've done alpha and beta, we wanna do gamma, we wanna do X-ray. So we keep layering these different analyses, one on top of another, making sure we're getting the maximum amount of information from each one. So when we're done, what we have is, we can tell you exactly what type of radioactive particle exists at Santa Susana, how big is it, what is it made of, what's its elemental composition, what's your dose if you breathe that particle, where it traveled, where it landed, whose house it is, what their dose is from being exposed to that particle. What would happen if someone breathed this particle and retain that for years. Remember, you can go to Santa Susana, walk on the site and be exposed for a day. Or you could be in one of these unlucky homes, breathe the particle and have it retained in your body for years or even decades. So pretty much what we've done is we've looked at the entire life cycle of the radioactive particle from where and how it was created to what its brother and sister particles look like that actually land on people's <clears> homes. And yes, the first answer from the state is well, background fallout from bomb tests in Polynesia. You want to throw up your hands, but in the end, you know, in the boxing ring of the information marketplace, we know which, which report is ultimately going to emerge.
3: You know, it's important to know too that the work that we did is decades better. Than the, than the work that Boeing has done, the, the current site owner, Rockadine, the owner before them, or the state, the Department of Toxic Substance Control. They did not do this kind of detailed analysis, and instead they blamed the bomb. I think that's what one of the recommendations in our report is, is that other parties, when they find this radiation, should not gloss it over, but go to the sophisticated analysis that we did, and make a link, and that's what differentiates our study from all the studies that went before.
0: In terms of the system itself, how were they collected? What was done to the samples to ensure that you knew where they were coming from and that they weren't contaminated with something else, and how many of these samples were taken?
1: We had about 360 samples. The samples came to me blind. This is important. I didn't know where the sample came from. If a sample was collected next to Susanna, I didn't know that. So what happened was the people who actually collect these individually in the field, they're recording in their notebooks where it is, what house it is, what address it is, getting the latitude and longitude by GPS, making sure that every sample is uniquely labeled. It gets an ID number that it's referenced to. At that point, Fairwinds has it, they take down all of the information they have and then they send me the samples after they've been screened for safety, but it's missing all of that personally identifiable information. And so I'm looking at what are just identification numbers which just then get converted to a new identification number at my end. I generate numbers that are unknown to fairways. So we keep the the system blind This is one of the things that is uh, not well known about these research projects is that these people who are donating samples, they don't get anything more in return than being able to read the report when it comes out. So we've completely separated folks from the individual data and it protects their confidentiality. This was a huge fight in the prior administration because we wanna make sure that this is how science is done or we won't be getting samples in the future. So we've worked probably hardest to make sure we've identified each sample for science and prevented any person from having the information needed to know what actual individual that data belongs to. So again, it doesn't help individuals, but the idea is that it helps the community and that the individual is protected and their confidentiality and privacy are respected. That's probably uh, as big a part of the process as, as the actual physical going out and getting it as that.
3: You know, Libby, there's another piece of it at the front end. Maggie put together a sampling protocol that's still on the Fairwinds website. If, uh, if another group were to start one of these up, that protocol would, would work for all of them. And, and basically, the collectors wear gloves and they uh, take a sample and put it in a plastic bag and label the plastic bag with the GPS. First, of course, if it wasn't a public location, we never took from somebody's property who hadn't approved our, our taking the sample, had actually asked for us to take a sample. There are no owners that didn't want to be part of this sampling effort, except for in the public locations, parks and along the fence post at Santa Susana and stuff like that.
2: And because of my paralegal work, we followed protocols that prove chain of custody. So the samplers have their books. It came to us. We created a database and then sent the database separate to Marco and his graduate students to, to work with and that was all protected, and they had assigned all different numbers. You know, no one looking at it could say, oh, this is near here, this is near there. The testing was done blind. This is an
1: important part of the process because there's a lot of things we're juggling. We're juggling the privacy of the donors, the safety of the people who are involved in the process. There's a lot of setup time. This is why, unfortunately, we can never take unsolicited samples. People will send us a package, I'm sorry, if it's not part of one of the studies we've approved in advance and designed this kind of system, it's going to be sent back to you unopened. No one will see it because it's so important to do that, all of that setup, up, maintain chain of custody, and
0: maintain safety
1: at every step on the way.
0: You said that there were 360 samples. Is that enough to draw meaningful conclusions in the data?
1: It's an interesting question. Uh, I know that the state of California collected about 36 samples. And the way I like to see it, that means between the two of us, we collected 393 samples, as opposed to, well, we got 360 and they only got 36. It's not that kind of contest. And that actually worked out when we looked at the data, because in our view, the data from the, albeit smaller sample set from the, the state of California, The data matches extremely well with what we found. They had the same percentage positivity rate for similar isotopes that we found. Now I realize that there's a difference in how they've chosen to characterize the data. I'm more confident in ours because there are far more samples in our data set. But in the end, because citizen science doesn't rely on that expensive use of elite labor hours traveling great distances, hopefully that means that we get more samples. And yes, my universal answer to should we have done more samples, it is always yes. But the engineer in me knows that you can't take an infinite number of samples. You always have to figure out what is the best you can do to get the data that you want. A uh, good example is the, the vaccine trials that went on for COVID. I participated in a trial. There are 40,000 people in my trial. We have really good data from that trial. But now we have a couple of billion people who've been vaccinated. So the data is even better. So although the trial pointed out that it was probably safe and effective, now we know that the vaccine is certainly safe and effective because of the huge number of people that have been able to get doses. And it's better science because we have a history. So it's a a nice indication that even if you go all the way to 40,000, you can still do better.
3: There's another piece to this. The report talks about um, a particle attached to to ash in Thousand Oaks and other particles in uh, Sumi Valley and throughout the area. That doesn't mean that there's nothing beyond that. That's where we stopped looking because we ran out of People in 360 samples is a huge number to process. So, when you look at this data and people say, Well, I'm beyond Thousand Oaks or whatever, that doesn't mean that they are safe. It just means that we didn't go out that far to analyze more samples.
0: We'll continue with this week's special interview on the peer reviewed report, Radioactive Microparticles Related to the Woolsey Fire in Simi Valley, California, in just a moment. But first, you know, the radiation being found from Santa Susanna Field Lab after the Woolsey fire is a great example of one of those stories the nuclear industry and the government agency officials who protect them just want to go away. Eyes closed, fingers in their ears, la, 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 la. They don't explain themselves. They don't respond to requests for comment. Left to their own devices, they'll never clean it up or even apologize. And as you heard from Dr. Kaltofen, They've got a playbook of platitudes and cliches to pacify the public. What I like to call the there there missy don't worry your pretty little head about it gambit. Except people, parents, residents are worried, concerned, and angry. That includes me. I live less than 30 miles from SSFL and smoke from that fire reached me inside my home on the very first day. So this is personal. I, we, deserve the truth. We need our officials to take responsibility, and when they don't, that's when citizen science joins with citizen anger, demonstrations and actions, the demand for accountability and cleanup, and a podcast that shares the information. That's why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. For more than 10 years, this show has been on stories just like this one that may flare in the mainstream media for a moment, but then disappear. Not here. We stick with it providing context and continuity. We're the one place where every week you can hear interviews with genuine experts, news, activist acknowledgments, updates, a steady drumbeat of verifiable information to counter nuclear industry cover-ups and lies. But we can't get by without your assistance, so we can keep doing this work. Here's what you can do. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the big red donate button, and help us with a donation of any amount. You can also set up a recurring donation as little as $5 a month. So if you value in-depth reports like this one, please do what you can now and know that however much you can help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now, we return to this week's special program on radioactive microparticles related to the Woolsey Fire in Simi Valley, California with Dr. Marco Caltofin. And Arnie Gunderson and Maggie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education. You've been calling this process citizen science. And I'm certain that there are people, especially allied with the nuclear industry, who just based on that term will dismiss what you've done and cast aspersions on the results, throw some shade on the process you used, implying or even stating that because it's citizen science, it must be amateurish, sloppy, and not to be trusted. What would you say to those people?
1: It comes down to let the data tell the story. What story does the data say? What's the standard deviation? What's the number? What's the statistical significance? The idea being to remove people from the process of producing meaning from all of the scientific information. And yes, we're people. People have, I don't call them frailties or problems. People have properties. They behave in certain ways. It's okay. I understand that. The idea of science is to get past that. So you could have the citizen scientist, somehow they're less valued to the nuclear science than say the paid employee of a a nuclear operation or the shareholder who wants dividends from a, a utility. I don't think so. The idea of science is that we're looking at physical evidence and physical evidence is physical evidence. I'm not interested in deconstructing the personality and life history of everybody who's involved in the process. Because we're all human, we all bring ourselves to these reports. What I do know is that citizen scientists are close to the action. They get samples in real time. They are interested in communicating results back to their community. And because they are citizen scientists, they're always under a tougher microscope and they realize it's their responsibility to be clear and credible and truthful because people fear that maybe there's some more emotional content in a story that's told by someone who lives next to one of these facilities. They realize they have a greater necessity to be honest and actually carry that data's story without putting their personal flavor into it. That's what helps people understand the data better And that's what motivates so many of these citizen scientists.
3: You know, there's another piece to that. The teams that did the sampling did not have Geiger counters with them. They were out looking for dust or ash. We didn't prospect to find radioactive particles. These teams didn't go out prospecting with the Geiger counters. Oh, there's one. Let's send that on. They simply found dust and ash on the ground. Took a sample and sent it to us. So the argument that we were looking for hotspots, I don't know how you can do that when you don't have a Geiger counter. So it's important to remember that we were not, the teams were not prospecting.
0: Who hired you to do this testing and how were you
2: paid? (laughs) Three leading scientists, you know, all of us donated our time. We have seven organizations for similar projects, and we're trying to fundraise. We need donations. We're also interested in grants. Both Dr. Kaltofen and I have written grants in the last several weeks and talked to grantors, and and we're hoping that someone will come through. A lot of our funding was cut during the pandemic, because rightfully so, a lot of money was from different philanthropic organizations was moved to go as a, as a COVID issue. But for the work we're doing against radiation is a worldwide effort. We've worked together in Japan, we're working together in the UK, and we're working together here in the US. And it's an environmental justice issue. It's racial discrimination, racial justice, because many of the sites are indigenous or in low-income areas that can't afford to fight back, and in Hispanic and, as I said, indigenous areas. The sites that are asking for this help cover everything from uranium mines to communities where manufacturing of radioactive materials is concerned and they're leaking out and, and contaminating water supplies and food supplies to every nuclear site, nuclear power, atomic power reactor site in the US and overseas because all of them leak. And the monitoring, Arnie and I have done this work, monitoring sites, for example, with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the papers they get in are absolutely untruthful. And there's no methodology to compare site A to B to C to D. You can't see what the industry is doing. We've looked at this. We started a study on that. We didn't have the funding to finish it, but we have more than half of the sites tracked for a period of, what, Arnie, is it? Two decades? Yes. And it's just really appalling that you can look at what, when a particular site had one reactor built and what it was releasing and what was listed in all its releases. And then what happened when they put up a second reactor and even a third. And when the numbers never change, that's scientifically impossible. And yet the Nuclear Regulatory Commission says, whoops, okay, they turned the paperwork in, here's the check in the box, and nobody looks at it. And it's very difficult to access.
3: You know, your question is who paid for this? We volunteered our time, uh, Marco, Maggie and I. That's a very poor business model, I might add, but uh, it was important to do for Santa Susana. But when we turn on the scanning electron microscopes, uh, Take a look at the peer-reviewed report that's up on the web, and you'll see some very sophisticated photographs of these particles. The analysis of these samples, outside of what the three of us did, the, the photographs, cost tens of thousands of dollars. We had a couple of donors step forward and fund some of that. But then the nonprofit that Maggie founded, Fairwinds, also funded it as well. And frankly, it made our life financially incredibly difficult. But, you know, it was important. And we made a promise to the people in California that they would get uh, competent scientific analysis at the end of the day. It's very expensive to turn a scanning electron microscope on once, let alone the, the number of times we had to use it on these samples. Thanks to donors and thanks to donors to Fairwinds, we did it. But we can't do it again. There's seven or eight groups that have approached us to do something similar. And we just, there's nothing in a tank to do something like this over again.
2: And every one of these groups that have asked for assistance from us live in communities that are contaminated. They're indigenous communities where there's been mining and the mines are closed down and they're leaking and people are inhaling the dust. It's coming out in water, the contaminated water from out of their pipes in their homes, it's so contaminated. There's a whole film on that, Zero Hot Water. And we know the the principals who made that film. There are a number of communities that have both nuclear waste dumps. Marco, Dr. Kaltopan has done an enormous amount of work at the Hanford Reservation, which is a World War II facility from developing the bomb. And we have similar waste dump and repository here in South Carolina, the Savannah River, which is adjacent to the Vogel nuclear power plants. So you look at all of that area and people are really sick there. We've been up there to speak, Arnie and I, we met a lot of the people that are working in the community and a number of churches are are trying to get funding together to, to do a study like this. But it costs a lot of money. Whether it's the, the science that Dr. Kaltofen is doing, whether it's the collection work that we would be doing, and the groups that we would work with to do the citizen science, and you asked earlier about citizen science, and that's a 2,000-year-old process. You know, we did we didn't say that. We said how it works now, but 2,000 years ago, it was started to collect samples of locusts and see how they were decimating food supplies. And it's been used all over the world and it's being used much more now because our planet is being so heavily impacted.
1: The most important thing to get from this is that the data is very clear. We can look at the type of radioactive material that's on the Santa Susana field laboratory. We can track where it goes, we can track where it ends up. And we understand the dose and health damages that that radioactive material can cause. So there's going to be another wildfire. There's gonna be more, they're gonna be bigger, hotter wildfires as our climate changes. And what our responsibility is, is to make sure that the contamination at Santa Susana is cleaned up before the next event that could spread radioactivity in
3: the community. My takeaway at the end of the day is that citizens have a right not to trust their government. If you look at state of California and the misstatements they've made about Santa Susana, or if you look at the government of the United Kingdom talking about the releases from the Sellafield nuke, or if you look at the Japanese government at Fukushima, citizen science takes the responsibility away from the government and puts it in the hands of independent scientists with information from people who really, really have the hands-on understanding of what's happening in the community. But when you want to play hardball with the big boys, you do have to spend some money. And that's what makes it so frustrating and so uh, difficult for us with seven or eight communities lined up for the same process. We just can't do it uh, without some help.
0: And ballpark, what would each of these studies cost?
3: If the state of California hired experts to do what we did, it would be $200,000. And we did it for about one tenth of that. Um,
2: it would be more than that, Arnie. It's much more than that. That doesn't involve a lot of the other tests. The last analysis I did with Marco puts it at 250 to 300,000 at a minimum.
0: NBC Los Angeles carried an excellent report the day the press materials were released. I find it interesting, if not expected, that none of the agencies involved with the story, not DTSC, not Cal, EPA, and certainly not Boeing, were willing to comment on camera for it. What kind of pushback are you expecting from DTSC, Cal, EPA, and Boeing, and what do you say back to them?
1: You know, sometimes when you use scientific data to tell a story, someone leaves you a bad Yelp review, and this is not something I worried about getting into science.
0: How long after you started testing, did you, did you discover radioactive particles in the dirt, dust, ash, and air filters?
2: I think it was at least a month or six weeks after all the samples were taken Then, and we taught them the protocols to ship them so that if there's any dirt or dust that's contaminated and the state had said it wasn't, there was no contamination. But if there was, then anyone who was handling that postal carriers or anyone else would be protected. So everything was shielded and it was shipped. And then we opened it in a setting that allowed the air to move. It was open air to look at all the bags. And we did have a a detector then so we could know what was coming in, and and whether it was safe to continue to ship it. As we did that whole process, that took time. We were setting up the database. The the woman who helped us set up the database has run Radioactive Lab before. So having her as part of our crew was just really amazing. And she and Arnie and I would work together in person here in South Carolina. And then we would take everything and ship to the university that Marco was working with that's where the actual equipment was? All the equipment except the scanning electron microscope. Those are private labs that have that. And so that's why we had to fundraise for that money separately. 750 I think it's gone up now. It's $800 an hour just for one particle at the lab. So, you know, you carefully scope it. By that point, you see, okay, well, these are the very similar to background. These particles are similar to background. Okay. So, but, oh, this one is 19 times background. Let's do an analysis and see what that particle is. Where did it come from? Is it natural somehow, or is it man-made? And if it's man-made, where do you tie it to? That's the sampling Dr. Marco Kaltofen was explaining to you earlier in the process.
3: You know, Libby, the, the samples did not come in as one block of 360. We would get a week's worth, 50 samples. And then we would make sure that they were safe to ship before we sent them to the control facility that did the sophisticated analysis. So, you know, I had a Geiger countermeasure and alpha beta and gamma on the outside of the container because we didn't want to irradiate the UPS man, for instance. And everything was doubly packed and triply packed with seals in between to make sure nothing got out. So we got we would get fifty, and then we get forty, and then we get sixty. So over the course of about four months, these samples uh, trickled in and were analyzed by Fairwinds before being shipped on to Dr. Kalthofen's university. And then every one of those samples then had to be put in a measuring device for eight hours to look for radioactivity given off. And then the more interesting ones, the ones that either emitted High radiation, or had alpha, beta, and gamma, or whatever, were separated out and then sent on to the scanning of electron microscope lab. Then you've got 360 pieces of desperate data that you have to make sense out of. The process took essentially three years. Likely with better funding, I think we'd cut that in half. But certainly not the nine hours that the state of California did saying, oh, don't worry, uh, be happy, nothing was released from the site. It's a a time-consuming, accurate process, and you just can't push it too fast.
0: Your findings were written up and submitted to the Journal of Environmental Radioactivity for peer review. Explain what that process consists of, how long it takes, and the importance of submitting your results there.
2: During the pandemic, we noticed that the process was taking longer. We had a prior journal article published during that time with Mary Liebert publishing about the Tokyo Olympic sites that was published in November, 2020. Now we move on to 2021. It takes a long time to break everything down, to write it, for all of us to do the analysis and write different parts of it as we each see it, and discuss it, and then say, okay, this is what we see as the major finding. This is how we need to present it, go through it. Then you send it out for peer review, and it takes them a few weeks, since people were working remotely during the pandemic, to even sort it. They'll, they'll acknowledge they've received it, but then they'll sort it, and, and then they'll find out who's available from their peer reviewers. We don't know who any of those people are. And they'll pick them and ask them to review it. And it came back very positive, but with requests also for more information. So we expanded what we had done. We, we wrote more about the citizen science portion and more about the climate crisis threat of wildfires and what that means to migrating radiation.
3: When you submit a paper for peer review, Maggie and Marco and I, me for a lesser degree, put enormous amount of time into writing the paper after analyzing all this data seven ways to Sunday. But then when you send it in for peer review, you don't know who those reviewers are. There's three or five reviewers who have the credentials to take a look at this. And they took a couple months to analyze our paper. And they sent back comments saying, this is a really good paper, but you've got to expand this piece or we don't understand that. So then it comes back to us for a couple months and we rewrite the portions that they didn't uh, understand and send it back, which is the normal process in peer review. We still don't know who those three or five individuals who had first crack at this were and we'll never know who they were.
0: The paper itself was published on Friday, October 8th, and the story released to the media on Thursday, October 14th. What has been the response so far, be it from the media
2: or the public? I think the response has been phenomenal from the public. They were waiting to hear the results of our research for a long time. And this is a community where children are sick and they're trying to find out what is causing these illnesses. It's a community that has more than a million people now in a whole proximity. And the fire ravaged part of the site. It hasn't even hit the part that's heavily, heavily contaminated. That was the site of a meltdown. So as the wildfire moved across it and moved all the way to the Pacific Ocean, radiation was carried there in smoke, soot, and ash. And that means people are breathing it in and ingesting it. And they don't know where it is. One person said to me, well, how can you guarantee that our location is clean? I said, we told you, there's no guarantee to that. It would cost more than the value of your home to strip every inch of dust and soil off that property and take away all the plants and everything else, trees, and they'd all have to be analyzed and cleaned and put back to be sure that that site was clean. And then the next major windstorm, rainstorm, or wildfire will bring it all back in. And that's the thing. Once radiation leaves the area where it's supposed to be contained, it's in the environment. And depending on the particle, it lasts up to 250,000 years. So it's, it's really a problem that corporations and the government are trying to cover up because they don't want to put the funding into the cleanup.
3: This could have been a lot worse. The Santa Susana site has a highly contaminated area that did not burn. And, you know, we're one fire away from much worse ash deposition into the surrounding communities because the fire swept across the Santa Susana site, but missed the worst contaminated areas just by luck. So global warming is going to be with us. Climate change is here. And we're one fire away from a much worse disaster than the
0: one we measured. Is there anything we haven't covered that you think it's important to put in at this time?
1: I think the most important parts about what makes this study interesting and not at all unique have come up.
0: And what would that be?
1: that citizen science is an emerging and better, more credible model for creating the scientific data that we need to help us solve the seemingly, but not really intractable problems of climate change, nuclear science, and environmental justice.
0: Anything else you want to add?
1: The American Chemical Society says, don't trust us, test us. And I say, deal.
0: This has been an important study that you did, a really thorough interview that you provided. And speaking as someone who lives less than 30 miles away from the Santa Susanna Field Lab, I deeply appreciate the work that you have been doing and that you continue to do. And in addition to that, I want to thank all three of you, Maggie Gunderson, Arnie Gunderson, Dr. Marco Caltefin, for being my guest this week on a very special interview for Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank
2: you, Libby, for having all of us. We'd greatly appreciate it.
0: That was Dr. Marco Kaltofin and Arnie Gunderson and Maggie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education. We'll have links to the peer-reviewed study, the press release, Fairwinds Energy Education, and the group Parents Against the Santa Susanna Field Lab up on our website NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode, number 539. And next week, we will continue this story. Interviews with Denise Duffield of Physicians for Social Responsibility, CME mother and activist Melissa Bumstead, and information on the award-winning documentary film about Santa Susanna Field Lab, In the Dark of the Valley, which will be shown on MSNBC on November 14th. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, October 19, 2021. Our thanks to our guests, along with each of the citizen scientists around the Santa Susana Field Lab who took samples and participated in this study. We encourage you to visit fairwinds.org, and that's spelled F A I R E W I N D S.org. Check out the material they have posted there, including a history going back of articles that they have posted about the Santa Susanna Field Lab, and do what you can to help them out. As I've said, we will continue to cover the story of the Santa Susanna Field Lab in all of its various ins and outs, and that means you're going to want to listen to Nuclear Hot Seat. So if you want to make certain that you don't miss a single episode, it's easy to get the show delivered to you via email every week. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down for the yellow box, fill in your first name and your email address, and we will send you a link every week to the show, along with a brief discussion of what's included in it. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, let me know about it. Send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment, go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for that big red button, click, follow prompts, anything you do will help, and we will really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2021, Libby Halevi and Hardestree Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that the true role of government is to manage panic and diffuse anger in the population, no matter how justified that reaction is, and that especially goes for nuclear issues. That's it. That is your nuclear wake-up call, so don't go back to sleep, because we are all truly in the nuclear hot seat